Hello, I'm Lauren Foster. Welcome to the Take 15 podcast, the weekly series where we bring you short conversations with some of the world's most thoughtful and accomplished people. Today on the show, psychiatrist, author, and behavioral finance expert, Dr. Richard Peterson. As CEO of Market Psych, Richard works at the intersection of the mind and markets. And as you can imagine, we had a lot to talk about. We discuss sentiment analysis, fear as the primary driver of investment decisions, and traits that influence how we take investment risk. Richard also shares suggestions for managing stress. And for those listeners who are financial advisors, you may want to try out his ideas script when dealing with fearful clients. Richard has a fascinating background and deep experience coaching wealth managers on how to improve their decision-making and client relations. I learned a lot, and I hope you do too. Richard Peterson, welcome. Yeah, thank you. It's good to be here. So Richard, you have a pretty unusual background. You're a board-certified psychiatrist, but you're also the CEO and founder of Market Psych. And so I'd love to hear a bit about that journey. How did you end up founding your company? So it's, it could be a long story. <laughs> um, I am a psychiatrist, so I'll go back to my childhood, I guess. So uh, when I was about 12, my father gave me some money to invest, and he was a professor of finance. And he was curious if I could learn to invest on my own. So I took that money and I uh, learned how to call a broker and place orders. This was in the 1980s, you know, when you use the phone and place your orders. So I did that, and, um, but I didn't really know what to buy or sell. So I ended up uh, in a roundabout way at a, at a magazine shop, a bookstore, and I said, you know, what, what magazine will tell me what to buy and sell? So they gave me a magazine like Forbes that said the top 10 stocks of 1986, you know, to buy. So I put, you know, 10% of my money in each of those. And then a year later, I noticed I was down 20%. So I thought, well, this can't be right. I, you know, I got the wrong magazine. So I got another magazine and did the same thing, you know, Smart Money Magazine, the top 10 small cap growth stocks and, you know, had a really bad year. So I was down 50% after two years of not even trading, just getting bad recommendations from the media. And so I lost a lot of money and I thought, wow, this is not right. And so I went back to my father and I, I talked to him about it. And he said, no, markets are rational. And, you know, you've just got to understand that you should buy what other people don't like and go where other people aren't looking. And I said, but that's not really rational. That's that's psychological. <laughs> and it's not not based on earnings and accounting. That's the perception. And and so we got into some very interesting discussions. And for me, it became um, exciting, this idea that markets and the financial industry was built on hard data but so much of us and our life is not so fixed. And so how could we and how could I do more research into this? And as I did the research, I realized it was very much a soft science. The psychology was um, you know, very weakly done, was very anecdotal. So I wanted to create really a scientific basis for, or if I could find any scientific basis for how to understand financial markets and, and our behavior in them. And so that's what ultimately drove me into um, uh, medical school and becoming a psychiatrist. Really interesting. That's probably a good segue uh, into talking a bit about sentiment analysis. I know you spent a lot of time uh, doing that and perhaps take us behind the scenes. You know, how do you measure sentiment? Uh, what is sentiment analysis? What are the data sources? Give us a sort of a short primer on sentiment analysis. Sure. So I think most people are familiar now with this idea of 
analyzing media, like news and social media. But it really got its start with investor surveys, even as early as the 1960s, asking people, where do you think the stock market is going in the next week, in the next month? And so there were these periodic surveys that seemed to have some correlation. For example, at, a, at the peak of the market, people would be very optimistic and positive. And at the bottom, they'd usually be very pessimistic and negative. But then the question was, is there any predictive value in this? And it wasn't until we've got high-speed computing and a lot of online communications, and so we have a, a really large bulk of data that we could quantify what's being said in the media. So all the positive comments about Apple stock or Amazon versus all the negative and create sort of scales and scores. And we can now do that in real time based on real-time, you know, minutely content, you know, millisecond content that's coming in through news and social media. So that's what we're doing. It's creating these time series of sentiment. And we have that back to 1998. And we're actually about to go back into the 1800s with these data sets, uh, you know, based on news, not social media, of course. And we can then look at the long-term cycles. And what we see now in the last two business cycles is sentiment really was quite predictive. Um, and when I say last two, I'm not including COVID. But even in the COVID cycle, we saw sentiment, for example, falling before uh, market prices fell. And so there seems to be a confirmation bias. Investors often don't act fast enough. And that's one of the insights we're gaining from this type of data is that there are, uh, there is an edge that can be developed in the markets in predicting the future. And of course, with the, COVID, with the coronavirus experience, we all have seen that earnings data and economic growth data is quite stale when there's a fast moving situation like this. And what you need is to understand what people in the media are saying and thinking and how they're feeling economically so that that'll tell you where the economy is going. And that's what we're able to pull out of the media now. Really interesting. Um, I imagine on social media, you're also seeing a lot of fear. And I'd love to talk a little bit about the, the drivers of decisions. Um, one of your co-founder, your co actually, Frank Murtha, has a quote that I, I came across yesterday that I really like. And he says, People talk about fear and greed almost the way they talk about thunder and lightning. Like these are two things that go together, um, but the impact is not even close. Greed doesn't even make a dent in the sort of power that fear holds over people's investing behaviors. And so I'd love you to talk a little bit about a fear as a driver of investment decision making. Sure. I mean, fear is, I think, the primary, I mean, as Frank said, is the primary driver. And it's really around, there's many ways that it manifests itself. So obviously in the coronavirus type crisis or in infectious disease outbreaks or economic slowdowns, we have first um, sort of a, like an inkling that something is wrong. And many of us ignore that because there's so many times in the media that you see headlines that say that something's wrong. And we have trouble understanding when to pay attention. But at some point, that fear will bubble up into our consciousness and make us very much aware that there's a threat. And once people are triggered to start thinking rather from their um, reward system, which is the, the essentially the system in your brain that tells you to take risk, they can then be prompted to move over into their loss avoidance system and suddenly see the world as a threat um, or see potential. So if you think about it in terms of risk, sometimes we think of risk as a good thing, like, oh, great, there's an opportunity here. I can make some money. But sometimes we think that risk means a bad thing. We might lose money. And it's really our brain is alternating between two ways of thinking, whether it's an opportunity or, or a threat. So fear is essentially that feeling of when we've been triggered over to start seeing the world in, uh, through the, the threatened lenses of how do I protect myself. Now, there's a lot of variation in individuals, a uh, huge variation where a pathological gambler 
has no sense of threat from financial risk in a casino, even though it's destroying their bank account and their relationships and their credit card balance. But then other people become so worried about financial risk that they put their money in their mattress and they, you know, are, it's eroded away by inflation. So we have uh, fear is, has a great spectrum of individual manifestations. And we see it in the market most classically in the equity risk premium, which is the idea that and has been true for hundreds of years. If you hold equities for the long, long term, that there is an extra return, I think three or 4% over say bonds uh, that you can yield. And that's because so many people are afraid of the daily volatility in those equities. So their fear is, is um, I mean, I could talk for hours about fear. We do have a uh, actually a one-hour presentation just on fear. That's interesting. So we can go on well, and on. Well, I have, I have another question actually about this because I was doing some uh, research ahead of this and I found something you'd written back in 2014. It was one of your newsletters that was titled Ebola, Hong Kong and Trading on Fear. I thought, well, that seems like it's kind of relevant again in, the, in sort of 2020. Um, and there was a sentence there that really jumped out at me. You wrote, our ability to trade against fear is in large part genetic. And so I wondered if we could, there were two things I wanted to find out a bit more about, sort of what are the traits that influence how we take investment risk? So there um, was some research that has come out of Stanford and uh, Duke that's very interesting where they control for all the different uh, factors underlying, say, fear that affect our financial risk taking. So essentially how you believe, what, what your beliefs are about investments. Do you believe that investments are an opportunity or a risk for your financial well-being? So beliefs are important. Uh, genetically, how are you likely to be triggered to be afraid of financial risk? Um, that's another factor. So there's beliefs, there's genetics. Then there's, there's your personality. That's another research-based way of measuring how people think about risk. So if somebody says to you, um, do you, do you like to take risk? Um, if you answer yes versus no, that could be on one of your personality traits. Um, it could load onto a personality trait. So you have personality and beliefs and genetics. Then there's your young life experiences. Were your parents always telling you that the stock market is a fool's game and very dangerous? Or were they telling you that it's the best way to get rich? So, and what did you believe? So we have these there's various dimensions like young experiences, genetics, personality, beliefs. And so what these researchers did was they tested um, all of these to look at what is the most influential. And when they controlled for everything else, the most influential was your genetics. And amazingly, your beliefs and your personality were largely explainable by your genetics as well. And then there was your early life experiences. They were, they were influential, but less so. So it really, much of it comes down to your genetics and how you were triggered at a young age. Uh, which was pretty remarkable. And then the rest of it, like our beliefs and our personality are just manifestations of that, um, which in some ways is disturbing because it sort of challenges our notion of free will, yeah, especially around financial markets. And so there's a, some bigger implications of this that you know haven't really been looked into yet, as for, at least as far as I know. Okay. So you did touch on this. There was something else that you said in, in that article. The vast herd of investors is reading news and reacting in a knee-jerk biological manner. Uh, the savvy, self-controlled investor can take advantage of the surges of market fear and relief. So I'm wondering, are you seeing a lot of herd behavior now? And how can sort of investors leave the herd and join the ranks of the savvy and self-controlled investor? It's a great question, and that's really the perennial issue. Um, so if you think about some of the best investors in history, like Warren Buffett or Benjamin Graham or uh, Munehisa Hanma, 
who was in Japan in the 1780s, wrote, um, he wrote, when all are bearish, there is cause for prices to rise. And Warren Buffett, of course, famously said, uh, buy when others are fearful and sell when others are greedy. So you would think that there's some time to buy when others are bearish or fearful, that that could be a good thing you know, for your portfolio. Um, so that's one perspective on the markets, the contrarian perspective. Then there's the other perspective, which is momentum, you know, chase what's working, go for that. And what we see in terms of the evidence coming out of sentiment analysis is that often we want to chase what's working, that the positive innovative companies do tend to continue performing. And I'm not just saying that because of the last decade. It's also true before the, the FANG stocks were out. So we do see this. And it's true if you remove the FANG stocks as well, you still see. Um, and it's true everywhere in the world that we've looked, India, Australia, Japan, China, um, Canada, et cetera. Everywhere in the world, the positive stocks that are positively, positively perceived by the media outperform the ones that are negatively perceived by the media. So that to us is very exciting because we tend to believe that it's our, our predisposition to buy or sell is what drives markets. And of course, that predisposition is formed by the information that we get. So whether we're reading negative news or positive news about a company, that subtly and often unconsciously influences how we do our research and how what will generally be open to buying or selling later on. So we do see the very strong quantitative evidence now um, to support sentiment momentum. So to your point about being knee-jerk, um, so Warren Buffett has a point, um, but to do that, you've got it's not a typical portfolio management tool, right? You can't run a easily run a portfolio by only buying, by waiting for a panic and then buying. You would have been pretty quiet for the last decade if that's what you'd been doing because there aren't that many panics. And then you have to be really careful about timing it. And in our quantitative research, we do find that a spike in fear often correlates with the bottoming process. And about 60% of the time, you'll get a you know 1.5% rise over the next week. But that's it. That's the only quantitative thing. And then actually on a daily basis, my colleague in this office with me has done some research where he shows that on a daily basis, we do see uh, when there's high fear, the market tends to rise the next day. So on the S&P 500. So we do seem, see a lot of evidence like that, but um, finding it and using it systematically is very hard. So most people should not be doing that. And yet they read those types of quotes and they get excited and think, well, I can gain this. And, and it's often the case that they can, but not if they're trying to. Like if they're sitting there with a portfolio of money waiting for it to happen, they're probably going to act too early. So I remember before the financial crisis and actually during COVID, I remember people saying they were buying on the dip when it was down, say, 5%, um, which is too early. Then it goes down 30% and you're wondering, oh, where was my stop loss? So it's a bit tricky to do these kinds of strategies and you have to be able to withstand a lot of volatility as well. So I imagine that as a psychiatrist, uh, there's not much that can surprise you in terms of human behavior. You've probably seen it all and then some. But I have to wonder, when you look around, are there still things that you think, oh my gosh, I can't believe people are still doing that or investors are following whatever it is that they're doing? Uh, are, are you still surprised by human behavior? Well, I'm surprised. You know, it's very interesting because the more layers that you think you understand, the more there are to understand. And the more you realize how little you understand actually in the in the big picture. So I would say I've become more humble the more that I've learned. And what I've also become more um, interested in is sometimes markets seem to react to, say, the naive uh, zero-sum investor who just looks at the news and reacts. But sometimes they're more subtle. 
So for example, in the big rebound from the coronavirus crisis, everyone in the know, you know, everyone who's knowledgeable would say like, well, no, the economy's going to get really bad. This is a, you know, I think I saw in the UK a once in 300 year slowdown. This is significant. So why is the stock market rebounding so heavily? And we see Goldman Sachs and others saying, well, it'll roll over again. Everyone's anticipating another rollover, but you know, really? <laughs> and why are they anticipating that? And you know, then when we look at the next layer, we also see that there's an emotional hangover effect, that when people have been through a crisis like this, maybe we can understand it not as things are overvalued, but we want to believe things are overvalued because we feel damaged and we feel upset by the uncertainty and the chaos that we just went through. So this emotional overhang affects how we project the future, how we interact with other people, you know, what social media and media we read. It affects our lives. And so really as a psychiatrist, what I've realized is we need to understand ourselves much more if we want to understand the world. And really understanding ourselves is the biggest step we can take towards understanding the world or the markets themselves. Are you seeing any people suffering from sort of a PTSD type of uh, effect or response to what's been happening the last few months, the crisis? Well, we, I think we see that in a subtle way in the uh, commentary on the markets. Again, yeah. when investment firms are saying, you know, this market, it doesn't make sense. It can't stay at these valuations. It needs to drop due to earnings. Um, when you see such a large consensus that this is a bad market, that means that maybe people are experiencing PTSD. And in our data, what we see is that after a big sharp decline like this, we see that the negativity in the media lingers. So the media, while it's good at catching the decline, that is, people start to say bad things before prices fall. The sentiment doesn't rise until after the bottom is well formed. So we actually look at other indicators like fear. And we see that when fear declines, then the bottom tends to rise. But the overall, so fear will rise, but optimism will stay bad. So people's beliefs about the future become quite negative after a crisis like this. And I would say that that is sort of a PTSD. That is like the trauma of what happened causes people to believe that things will remain bad and they lose hope. And so th that's unfortunate. And but again, by understanding the, the cycle of markets and how the emotions work and how those emotions manifest in our behavior and in our thought processes, then we can really do a great job in understanding markets themselves, we hope, we think. So a lot of people I think are feeling fearful and anxious and rightly so at the moment, the pandemic is still dominating the news headlines. Can you share any techniques for managing stress or sort of dealing with a crisis? Oh, sure. So there's a number of ways of looking at it. One is the acute stress. So if people are in crisis during, uh, during an event, there's a number of ways to deal with that vigorous exercise. Uh, of course, talking to a friend or loved one or, you know, some sympathetic ear. So uh, doing something you enjoy, you know, taking a break, of course, a walk in nature is important. Uh, if the stress has been going on for a good period of time, a couple of weeks um, or months, then we often, after two weeks or so, our bodies sort of acclimate to the stress and become um, adapted and we become more loss averse, a bit more depressive and anxious. So after chronic stress, we have other interventions like a real vacation, turn off the media, get away from it all, go out into nature, learn a new skill, learn to you know, speak a new language, learn to take cooking classes online or you know, do something new and completely different. So that is something that can help if somebody's been in that chronic stress for a, a chunk of time, two weeks or more. then. Um, but what we also like to say is the big picture is really to prevent. 
that this, you know, we all know that this will happen. And having a good exercise routine, healthy sleep habits, healthy eating habits, all the usual recommendations that we all know about and don't follow as well as we should, all of that applies. And, and then really when we're thinking about uh, stress, you know, in the, in the short term, we have to understand that the markets aren't us. You know, we, we can't personify the markets. What's happening to us is, is, is something that's right now. A lot of people get stuck in the past. But if they could just be present with what is and say, okay, today is another day. Here's the objective reality of what's happening. You know, the market is down 5%. My portfolio is here. What's my plan? So part of prevention is, well, we should have made that plan before the crisis happened. So my colleague Frank Murtha has a financial stress management plan that he's, he talks about. And basically, it's a one-page contract with yourself or with your financial advisor where you say, if my portfolio drops 10% or 20% or 30%, here's what I'll do. And for each condition, you know, list out what you'll do. And is there any condition, like a nuclear blast or a global pandemic, when you would change your allocations? And if not, no problem, just stick with it. But every time you feel like changing your allocation, pull out that stress management plan that you made with yourself, that you signed, and review that. So we, we know many financial advisors who do this with their clients as well to uh, prevent the crisis from throwing somebody, you know, causing them to, to throw out their long-term goals and just to start things too short-term. Great. And so for our listeners who are client-facing, for example, like financial advisors, um, in terms of tools for managing fearful clients, can you talk a little bit about the idea script and how they could use that? Oh, sure. That's another tool that we have, and it's in our book, uh, Market Psych, I believe, as well. So the idea script is an acronym which stands for inquire, describe, empathize, add another perspective, and suggest solutions. And so that acronym, what it's really is how a advisor or a wealth manager, when a client comes in who's emotional, how can they uh, use techniques of marriage therapy, essentially, to help the client feel better with the stress that they're going through and not change their plan and essentially stay on track. Um, and it helps de-escalate emotion. So inquire is if somebody comes in and says, you know, I'm really worried about this COVID thing. I think it's a, you know, once in a hundred year pandemic. I think I need to get out of all my investments and go to cash. And they say, um, then you inquire. So inquire would be, oh, I, I hear what you're saying. Um, you know, you, you would like to go into cash. Why is that? Again, can you explain a bit more? And then let them explain a bit more about the position and then you describe back to them what they said. So describe is mirroring. It's when you say, ah, oh, so you're worried about your investments losing more value because of a global pandemic. And so you'd like to change your plan so that we cut out the investments now um, and get straight into cash. And then they say, yes, that, that's what I'm saying. One thing that happens when you mirror what they're saying to you, is the emotional intensity declines. So the trigger that had gone off that caused them to brush into you and ask for that is now reduced. Then E is empathize. So then you say, so things must, I understand things are really stressful right now. It's a completely game-changing situation and we've never been through anything like this. It's, it's gotta be really unsettling for you as it is for all of us. And then let the, you know, show the person you know their emotional state. And then they, once they feel that you're empathizing with them, then you're connected. You, you've got that bond of trust that, okay, emotionally you can contain them, it's going to be okay. And then A stands for add another perspective. So you say, you know, we've talked about 
these types of crises before and how sometimes there's opportunities during crisis. You know, Warren Buffett always says, you know, buy when others are fearful. I wonder if there's a place where they're fearful and they really shouldn't be fearful. And then they think, oh, yeah, I wonder if there is. So, and then suggest a solution for S. Um, instead of since, so suggesting the solution could be instead of going into all cash, maybe a solution would be to find some area that's really um, where people are dumping it, but it's really an opportunity. You know, we know things will eventually get better. This will pass. The healthcare industry is always going to be strong in a pandemic. Maybe we should look into something like that and, you know, maybe reallocate. And then ultimately the conversation can turn into, well, maybe we can reallocate a little of our ETF exposure from this sector to this sector and then keep it small and simple and the client will be less triggered. So that's the big picture on the ideas script, I-D-E-A-S. Sounds like a great script. And I'd love to end our conversation uh, on a very positive note. I've been starting uh, since the pandemic ending with what I call the ray of sunshine question. We try and focus on something positive. Um, so two questions. Uh, I'd love to know what's been the most positive experience for you that's come out of the, the COVID crisis. And then looking longer term, what do you hope would be sort of a long term lasting impact, uh, I guess, in terms of human behavior that you hope to see coming out of the COVID pandemic? Yeah, great question, Lauren. So one thing that I've experienced living here in the Netherlands is a very rational culture where people are very practical and they very much look at what are the solutions that stick and that will work for the long term. So there are you know networks of bike paths all over the Netherlands, even though it's a very cold and wet country, um, where people bicycle and stay fairly fit and healthy and you know inadvertently perhaps take care of their long-term health quite well. I think that there may be more of this awareness of the importance of long-term health, chronic conditions, and maybe more awareness of the role of government in ensuring that, whether it's to, um, whether we accept that government takes that role in bolstering public health, I'm not sure. But certainly there may be more awareness of the role or the necessity of that. And I also hope that there will be more practical research-based thinking about these issues and, and a bit more understanding that there are experts who understand these viruses and experts don't know everything, but they do know typically a lot more than most of us. And so maybe we can um, spend some more time listening to those experts who are humble and admit what they don't know, but it's not a sign of weakness to say we don't know something. It's really a sign of strength because it shows that this is a person that's worth listening to. So I, I hope that there'll be a, I hope, I don't know if it will happen. There'll be some consciousness um, about the importance of practical solutions to our problems that benefit everyone. That would be my hope. Now, yeah. Now, now, in terms of the social evolution, you know, this is a difficult time, uh, unparalleled time, as they say, and we'll see how things evolve. Certainly, there will be social ripples and social ramifications. Um, where that goes. Um, you know, I think we're already seeing some of that play out in the widening inequality. So we'll see how that is solved in the long term by political forces. Great. Thank you so much, Richard. Lots to think about. I appreciate your time today. Always a pleasure speaking to you, uh, to you and your family. Stay safe out there. Oh, thank you, Lauren. Okay, take care. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider rating and reviewing us on iTunes or wherever you're listening. We'd love to hear your thoughts and it helps others find the show. Also, a quick reminder, this podcast isn't intended to provide expert advice on the topics we covered. If you need tax, accounting, or legal advice, please consult a professional. I am Lauren Foster. Thanks so much for listening.